millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Ghibliotech, the podcast that gets between the covers with the films of the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader. Hello everyone, just me again this week. It's a rainy and grey day here in Sussex, so what a perfect day to curl up with a book. So here I am to tee up a chat with a returning guest and friend of the show, Alex Dr. Witt, marking the publication of his new translation of Hayao Miyazaki's book, Shuna's Journey. We last had Alex on the podcast last year to talk about his BFI Classics book on Grave of the Fireflies, and it's great to catch up and dig even deeper with him today. Here's the big question. What is Shuna's Journey? Well, it's sort of a companion piece to the Naushka of the Valley of the Wind manga made in the early 1980s before the whole Ghibli phase of Hayao Miyazaki's career kicked off. The difference is that it's not really a manga in the strictest sense. It's more of a picture book with captions lying alongside beautiful painted imagery. It's also short and very easy to read. So if the doorstop collection of the Naushka manga was uh, a bit insurmountable, this is the perfect alternative for you. But before we go any further, let's have a bit of synopsis from the publisher. Shuna, the prince of a poor land, watches in despair as his people work themselves to death, harvesting the little grain that grows there. And so, when a traveller presents him with a sample of seeds from a mysterious western land, he sets out to find the source of the golden grain, dreaming of a better life for his subjects. It's not long before he meets a proud girl named Thea. After freeing her from captivity, he is pursued by her enemies, and while Thea escapes north, Shuna continues towards the west, finally reaching the land of the godfolk. Will Shuna ever see Thea again? And will he make it back home from his quest for the golden grain? Now, even there, you might be hearing notes and themes that sound a bit familiar from other Miyazaki works. This is very much a Rosetta Stone for a lot of what we see in his films afterwards. But there are interesting points of departure too. things that are in this book that he doesn't really follow on in his films. We dig into that and so much more in this chat with Alex. So without further ado... Here is me and Jake talking with Alex Dudok-Dewitt. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Alex, welcome back to the podcast it's always a pleasure to chat with you and congratulations on the publication of Shuna's Journey finally in English it's been a long time coming yeah 39 years since it came out in Japan uh, thanks very much for having me back on I'm glad to be here and this time I'm fully mic'd up um, so new better upgraded version of me <laughs> you're coming through loud and clear um, I suppose to start with you said it's been 39 years in the making of course don't want to age you, but that's uh, you probably didn't read it on publication. But when did you come across Shuna's journey? I actually came to it quite late um, as a Miyazaki fan. So I'd been watching his films since I was a child in the 90s. But um, this book I read for the first time, I think three years ago. And we have the British Museum to thank because they, as you'll remember, they, they did a, a manga exhibition. Uh, it was, I think, in 2019. I, we actually had a tie-in uh, podcast where I came on Bibliotech to, to speak to you during that exhibition. And as part of this exhibition, it was a general kind of um, spread of different manga genres and different manga artists. But in the corner, there was a bookshelf with just a random array of, you know, mangas that they picked up in various places, just kind of put there, um, and a bench. Uh, you could sit down and leaf through the manga. It's like a reading corner. And I was just leafing through that and I saw Shuna's Journey um, and I'd heard of it. I'd heard of it because as as someone who'd been following Miyazaki's films, you know, I'd, I'd heard it be brought up in the context of some of the Ghibli films that are you know influenced by it. But I'd never read it. And so I started leafing through it then and I thought, okay, this is, this is something. You know, I didn't realise it was this beautiful <laughs> I didn't realize the, the you know I didn't realize it was all watercolor I think that's something I hadn't really registered and so I got a copy and really sat down to read it um yeah it must have been not long before the pandemic and then that hit and in those kind of long dark days of the early of the first lockdown I came back to it and thought I you know 
this this should really be translated um and as it happened i was um working with ghibli on on, an, on a different project at the time and so in that context i i brought this up and i said you know why hasn't shuna's journey been translated <laughs> and could i do it please and uh it took a bit of discussion and um i think they took a bit of convincing but um eventually they said yes and the whole project kind of snowballed from there we love to hear about those kind of inner workings of ghibli and like kind of let in behind the curtain there so though the convincing there what do you think because surely this is just an open goal what do you think the convincing actually is i don't know for sure um this is all happening through email uh the copyright to the book the japanese original is held by studio ghibli um that said it's obviously a work by miyazaki miyazaki is still at studio ghibli um miyazaki holds quite a lot of sway at studio ghibli and i think it's a matter of discussing with him about what he wants as well um i wasn't privy to their internal discussions though i was just sat there refreshing my inbox waiting to get their response <laughs> <laughs> to my request <laughs> and um yeah I, I don't know if it was a matter of hesitation on their part or whether it was just you know it took a bit of time for them to discuss the thing internally and it takes a bit of time for the request to kind of make its way through the different um people in the studio so that's all I can say. Yeah, not not really great gossip or insight about the <laughs> about the inner the, the working wheels of the studio. But um, eventually they uh, they said yes, let's do it. Um, and then there was still quite a long uh, process of actually finding a publisher for it. Um, I had this uh, sense that so I, I you know I, although I work as a journalist, I I'm not hugely. Uh, embedded in the publishing community, especially when it comes to graphic novels and comics, um, and especially when it comes to the US, which is where most of the likely publishers for an English translation of Shuna's Journey are based. And I, so, sort of naively, um, I started approaching a lot of these publishers kind of cold, emailing them out of the blue, being like, hey, I'm, you know, I've got this Miyazaki thing, uh, are you interested? Um, and none of them replied. And because it would sound like they've got a madman on the other end of the email. That might have been it. It's like, yeah, that, just so <laughs> casually. Yeah, I've got like a, a, a Miyazaki book. Yeah, uh, just from a random <laughs> Gmail account, <laughs> not even a Ghibli one. Um, and so, yeah, it took me a little while to kind of learn the ropes and realize that I needed to approach them via an agent. And eventually Ghibli and I found an agent, uh, a French guy called Sylvain Croissard, who is uh, kind of specialised in graphic novels and comics. And through him, we managed to establish a link with First Second, who, who were keen. Um, and it's, it, I mean, they've been brilliant, First Second. They're, they're an interesting one because they're not really they don't have a long track record of publishing japanese stuff they publish a lot of fantasy a lot of young adult um stuff which you know shuna's journey sits nicely alongside but they don't have a huge um they're not like 
they're not a classic manga and Japanese graphic novel publisher. Um, at the same time, I don't know if that's necessarily what Studio Ghibli were after. I think rightly they see Shuna's Journey as something slightly different from manga that can be marketed a bit differently. It's not really a manga in the strict sense of the word. And so that arrangement with First Second was was a really nice one. They, it seemed like, um, and they've been great. The, the, the other thing that really surprised me is that, so I did the translation once this was all kind of secured. Um, I sent it off to First Second. We worked on the translation, but at no point really during this whole process did I know what their vision was for the actual book, the format, the the design, you know. At some point along the way, I learned that Ghibli was um, taking this opportunity to rescan all of the original artwork that Miyazaki produced, which he still has. And uh, so that gave me a sense that, you know, they wanted to they wanted to present it in a new way, slightly differently from the Japanese original. But not until the first copy of the book uh, came through my letterbox a couple of weeks ago, did I realise that they've really gone to town with the presentation. The, the colors are very different from the Japanese version. They, you know, they rescanned the artwork and they clearly have taken a lot of care to ensure that the colors are as true as possible to you know, Miyazaki's vision, his original, his original uh, paintings. Uh, the book is bigger than the Japanese original, which again, I didn't, I hadn't really appreciated, but it makes a, a, a very big difference to the reading experience and Going back through it um, with this first second edition, I'm I'm seeing things in the illustrations that I hadn't even spotted before. The paper is a really nice matte kind of quality paper stock. Um, yeah, they've they've done a beautiful edition with it, um, which uh, it doesn't it didn't really surprise me, but I just I guess I wasn't expecting. I, I didn't exactly know what to expect. Um, I was so tunnel visioned. In my focus on the actual text <laughs> yeah I, I can't wait to meet this book in person we've only read it digitally so far but reading it digitally means you can sort of zoom in and really appreciate that mm. artwork it really is a, a a beautiful rescanning job i suppose we are getting this as almost the great lost miyazaki book mm. uh, in, in english language territories what is its uh, reputation in Japan? Is it seen as being one of his key texts or is it similarly sort of lower tier uh, in terms of the great Miyazaki project? I don't know if it's seen as one of his key texts, but it has been, it, it's it's sold pretty well. It's been in print uh, since 1983 when it first came out. Um, and it's, as a result, it is talked about uh, in a way that it, that it hasn't been in the Anglosphere or basically anywhere outside Japan. Um, it's fully there in his in Miyazaki's uh, Japanese Wikipedia. I mean, it probably is on his English Wikipedia too, but it gets fuller discussion in Japanese. Um, I've read many critical texts or academic texts in Japanese about Miyazaki that kind of weave discussion of Shuna's journey in. There are blog posts about it. So it has a presence there in a way that it really doesn't over here. You know, I was reading um, Susan Napier's book, Miyazaki World. Susan Napier is an American academic. Miyazaki World is uh, kind of presented as one of the definitive critical, uh, you know, evaluations of Miyazaki's body of work in the English language. 
and it is very thorough in, in some ways, but it doesn't even mention Shuna's journey uh, to the point where I wonder whether she's even read it because Shuna's journey is so much a part of uh, Miyazaki's career and, and specifically some of his films later. Some of them hark back explicitly to Shuna's journey. Right, that, and the Naushika manga as well. Like, yeah. That, that there's, there was stuff that I was picking up in here that he's clearly interested in that he wouldn't really revisit as a kind of visual cue for another 12 years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He, um, yeah, I mean, he, st he started producing the Naushika manga and made Shuna Journey at roughly the same time. The two really seem to kind of yeah, they, they kind of sprout out of the same set of ideas, I think, that he was developing in the early 80s. Um, but yeah, Shuna's journey has uh, been passed over in silence. And I assume the, re the main reason for that is that it hasn't been available in English until now. Um, and now it is, but, you know, still many Miyazaki uh, mangas and books that haven't been translated. And it kind of reminds you how much on the one hand he has been analyzed and talked about and kind of lionized uh, outside Japan and on the other hand how much of his work is still actually unknown mm. outside Japan just just then as you were talking I ducked out to pick up my copy of starting point mm. and I don't think there's even anything it's in the chronological bio, bio, biographical chronology at the end it's mm. mentioned in the 1983 section right. but considering that there's a whole chunk in here about an essay he wrote about finishing the Naushka manga mm. in uh, in the early 90s. I don't think there's much about Shuna in here. And in fact, I think in terms of, you know, when we did earlier on in the podcast series and I bought every English language book about Ghibli I could find, there's not much in the way of discussion of Shuna. And in fact, I wonder if this is how you heard about the copy in the British Museum exhibition. It was Helen McCarthy, who I think on Twitter, when she went to her preview, she said, hey, go into that little library section in the middle of the exhibition and you'll find Shuna's journey and she talked about how it was almost um an important key to unlocking a certain strand of his feature filmmaking career of the like de the decade afterwards and you can see I, I don't remember that tweet uh maybe I saw it at the time and, and that lodged itself in my subconscious but she she's right I mean I saw Recently on Twitter, someone described Shuna's journey as the Rosetta Stone of Miyazaki's work. And mm -hmm. maybe that's slightly overstating it, but there's a lot of truth in that. It's it's full of ideas, motifs, even images, characters, scenes mm. that are not always fully developed within Shuna's journey, but which uh, are developed subsequently in his films. Well, uh, and the, the kind of paying off of it goes as far as like Tales from Earthsea, yeah. where you've got like there's a particular image of a a giant ship that's moored in the middle of a desert mm. and it's almost like you'd see it as shot for shot in Tales from Earthsea. You do and in Tales from Earthsea yeah similarly when they enter the, the big teeming kind of city and you've got these kind of like um, armoured vehicles full of human full of slaves kind of being carted out of the city through the through the ramparts that's also more or less lifted from Shuna's journey as are many other things. Tales from Earthsea is an interesting one. It's directed obviously by Miyazaki's son, Goro, uh, and it is ostensibly an adaptation of Ursula Le Guin's novels, uh, Earthsea novels. Uh, 
but um, as we know, uh, Goro Miyazaki was kind of induced by Toshio Suzuki, I think, I can't remember the exact story, Suzuki on behalf of Hayao Miyazaki suggested to Goro that he also take a look at Shuna's journey while developing the Earthsea film, and the result is a film that to me plays more like an adaptation of Shuna's journey than the Earthsea books. <laughs> it deviates massively from the Earthsea books, and Ursula Le Guin herself um, noted this in her absolutely scathing review of the thing. Uh, but it hews quite closely to many things in Shuna's journey, not just images, but also the kind of device, almost the structure of the story whereby you have a, a young prince who flees his kingdom and kind of goes on an odyssey, encounters this slave trade, frees a slave, is later cursed, and then uh, kind of helped by the... He doesn't free a slave, sorry, he saves a girl from uh, being caught by slave traders in, in Earthsea, doesn't he? Um, in Shuna's journey, he frees a slave, and later that person he's helped comes to help him. Um, that that whole kind of structure doesn't doesn't appear in the Earthsea novels at all, but it's there in Shuna's journey. And then in the credits to Earthsea, sure enough, you have Shuna's journey, Hayao Miyazaki credited as the original idea for the film. Um, so that's, yeah, I guess that's the only case where Shuna's journey is explicitly credited in a Ghibli film, but you see its template in other things as well. Princess Mononoke, I think, is the most obvious one. Um, yeah. I, I, I think um, it might have even been when we did the panel with Helen on this podcast, she said, she said that you could see in some ways uh, Castle in the Sky, Princess Mononoke, uh, uh, Miyazaki's attempts to do Shuna or bring elements of Shuna, but then it's seen it's, seen, it's final realisation in Tales from Earthsea. But then most of the English language world's uh, reviews of Tales from Earthsea treats it as just a pure adaptation of Le Guin. So mm. the publication, translation of Shuna, now Jake, you must be very happy, gives us another reason to go back to Tales from Earthsea and reevaluate it. <laughs> well, I mean, what I'm hearing is Alex saying that actually Tales from Earthsea is a great adaptation, <laughs> just not of Tales from Earthsea. <laughs> I never said great. <laughs> <laughs> but it just said, a, it adds further fuel, doesn't adaptation. it? <laughs> adds further fuel to the discussion around how you know Tales from Earthsea starts with a son killing the father and all of that. Whether it was uh, so popular managed by Suzuki or not, uh, between the generations, uh, adds further fuel to that discussion. I think. Mm. Um, but Alex, I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit about how this sort of compares and contrasts with Nauschka. So he's working on these two um, very different manga series, although they're not really manga series at the same, you know, similar time. Mm. Very different, one being a contained narrative, one being more sprawling, very different in style as well, visually. Mm. Um, how does Shuna differ from, uh, differ from Nauschka for you on reading? Um, yeah, well, I think crucially... Uh... Shuna's Journey is a self-contained book. Although it ends on a kind of cliffhanger, but still, it is a complete standalone work that Miyazaki produced relatively quickly. I think he'd been developing it in, in his head for a bit, but once he got the green light to make this book, he just like beasted through it in about five, six months. 
Naushka Manga, he had started it already at that point, but it would kind of sprawl out over 12 years of his life. And that means it is kind of, it is a true epic, uh, kind of operatic, you know, story full of warring tribes and kingdoms and lots of different storylines, lots of different kind of intricate kind of stakes and different characters. Shuna's Journey uh, is, um, well, it's based on a folktale and it is like a folktale, like a fairy tale. It's the the story is relatively simple there are few characters um and whereas Naushka plays out you know in true manga style with lots of dialogue lots of different characters with different voices shuna's journey barely has any dialogue at all it's got a couple of speech bubbles but almost none uh, which is one of the things that kind of marks it apart from manga as we generally understand it right and the story is instead related through kind of captions in the voice of a kind of omniscient fairy tale style narrator and those th those sentences are very short and simple almost kind of crystalline in their clarity and simple kind of just declarative sentences um sometimes you only have one sentence for a whole double page spread or even no text uh, which, which gives it a very, very different mood, um, and and also you know has implications for the characters themselves. In Naushka, he can really develop psychological complexity, and I'd urge anyone who's only seen the film and not read the manga to seek out the manga because Naushka herself is de developed so much more richly in the manga than in the film. She's so much more complex. She has constant um she's constantly making compromises or kind of struggling internally about what's you know the right moral course of action and so on it's very psychological shuna's journey not so much more so than the folk tale miyazaki based it on which is really just the, the characters are completely flat in but in shuna's journey there isn't really space to develop the more than that and it's not really the story miyazaki's trying to tell um, Shuna, the prince, um, has some difficult decisions to make, uh, but we rarely, we don't have a huge amount of access to his internal thoughts. And when we do, you know, his, I'd say, yeah, the, 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 it's basically just kind of a lot, a lot more kind of like a lot simpler than Naushka in, in that respect. Um, that's also kind of reflected in the visual style. Uh, Naushka is very, very dense, very dense black. It's black and white as well, kind of pen work, cramming in details. Um, Shuna's journey is a lot sparser. It's all watercolor, uh, all color. Um, it's kind of like slightly kind of like loose, sketchy line work. It's, it's the Miyazaki work that looks most like a Takahata work. Oh, you think? Hmm. When in the, you're, you're like those elements that you might see in only yesterday or in Yamada's or in Kaguya. Yeah. Where you, you, you feel those brushstrokes, there are elements of the page that are just left empty. Like it's a really spacious work. 
mm. I feel like it's very compared to Nausicaa, which is quite an like quite an abrasive read. Like it's quite a challenge to actually read it because mm. there's so much going on. It's so dense. Whereas I think you can really luxuriate in Shuna's journey, and there are those spreads which you can just happily, in the same way that you might want to uh, pause pause the film and just kind of let something wash over you. I think you have that with Shuna's journey less so with a, a Nausicaa manga. Yeah, I, th- I think that's um, that's true. It's true. The, the early chapters of the Nausicaa manga, yeah, genuine. The, the images are genuinely hard to pass sometimes, uh, and I think it does get a little bit more simplified as as he goes on with it. But Shuna's journey is is kind of sparse and um, I want to almost say minimalist, not quite minimalist, but you know, it has. There's a lot of breathing space in it. He uses these. Time and again in Shuna's journey, he returns to these landscapes, which you don't really see much of in Miyazaki films, which is wide open plains and barren plains. And um, in, we think of Miyazaki as someone who likes kind of complex architecture or dense forests. Or, and when he does have wide open spaces in his films, it tends to be the sky. Uh, or even there, the clouds kind of get in the way and give the sky a, a kind of structure and depth of its own, or maybe the sea. But these kind of open planes are like not something he comes to very often in his films, but here he really kind of works that landscape and the atmosphere of it, um, which gives it its own kind of quality in, in his body of work. Um, the, the thing it really seems to grow out of for me is uh, I would urge anyone interested in this period of Miyazaki's or, or in Miyazaki's work in general to find this book called Naushika Watercolour Impressions, which I've got here. I'm kind of showing it to you guys. And this, uh, Michael, you were talking earlier about English language books that talk about Shuna's journey. This is one of them. It's, it's in English. Shuna's journey comes up. Um, the book is ostensibly a kind of visual album describing the development and production of Naushika um the film adaptation especially but because all of that came out around the same time as Shuna's journey you've got a lot of images in it that seem to be building up to Shuna's journey and you see in it that Miyazaki uses watercolor um to explore works a lot of concept artwork in this done in the kind of like slightly sketchy watercolor style that you then see him adopt in Shuna's journey. There are some images in this, which again, ostensibly are showing the route to Naushika, which look almost indistinguishable from um, from backgrounds in, in Shuna's journey. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, that, that, I'll have to see if I can pick up that book. That sounds amazing. And because mm. uh, I, I thought of the, um, the, Totor- uh, the first Princess Maranoki is it that's what's called Prince of Mokit, the first story, which I guess yeah. he may he, he did a, uh, some sketches for some of the watercolor impressions for around the similar time, although they weren't bundled up until and released until the early nineties, which is the sort of proto Mononoke that has elements of almost Totoro like uh, designs in. Um, it's very different to what Nashka is, but I think another one is you mentioned the landscape, Alex, and I suppose what's different here from the landscapes we see on screen is that he's very influenced by. Japanese landscapes or Western European landscapes. And mm. this one, uh, I think you say in your introduction, is a bit more rooted in an Asian storytelling medium 
or uh, landscapes as well. So you're, mm. you're looking at a different worldview at various times as well. Yeah, I mean, that's the location, the setting of the story. It's never made explicit where it is. I mean, we're in a kind of fairy tale fantasy land. So, um, but, you know, it's significant that the inspiration for Shun's journey is a Tibetan folktale and the story starts out in a kind of mountainous windswept little kingdom which is essentially a village up in the mountains um which which bears a bit of a resemblance to the valley of the wind you know where Naushka herself comes from um and you know they, they got agriculture there but the land doesn't yield a huge crop they're kind of struggling in that regard um and so shuna embarks west and his his journey his his odyssey basically um takes him through these landscapes that again never explicitly said where they are but they look a lot like um initially silk road type paths and cities there's one really striking bit where he climbs down a cliff face into which he discovers has been engraved a huge statue of a, a Buddha-like figure, um, which looks like nothing less than the Bamiyan Buddhas in Afghanistan. So, um, he eventually reaches the sea, and this would seem to follow a western trajectory from Tibet to um, to I guess the, the Middle East. Again, it's significant that he's looking for a type of golden grain which is a kind of stand-in for barley or wheat mm. and that the fertile crescent in the middle east is where this was um, first cultivated so we're in some version of asia it seems and it's absolutely true that we don't see that world really turn up again in miyazaki's films although in, in naushka um we definitely see you know influences of Central Asian steppes and deserts and, 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 and also mountains. I think, like, it's interesting to talk about the, the imagery that we might see popping up or the imagery that we see him, as you say, grow out of or become less interested in. But philosophically or thematically speaking, what do you think he's interested in or not interested in here that as his career evolves as a storyteller how does he shift how does he move away from what he's doing in Shuna's journey do you think for me the the, the fundamental question uh, maybe we should just recap slightly the plot of Shuna's journey for benefit of listeners who haven't uh, heard it yet so Shuna is um the kind of the yeah young prince the heir to the um to this kingdom which is really just a small community up in the mountains and his people are uh, kind of making do with what little agriculture they have. He hears of this mythical uh, golden seed, uh, which will bring you know a life of plenty and happiness and and peace to anyone who can have it and cultivate it. And so he decides to set off in search of this seed, this grain, and bring it back to help his people make them have a better life. Um, and thus begins his adventure. Um, so right there, we've got already a big Miyazaki theme, which is, uh, well, the question of how people relate to their land and their environment, and specifically the problem of like scarcity of resources and 
and how we react to that um, in Naushka, kingdoms go to war over scarcity of resources. In Princess Mononoke, um, people destroy the forest for the sake of timber, resource that they need to, for their own purposes. Um, there's something interesting in Shuna's journey, which is the way that this adventure begins. Uh, so like many, many Miyazaki heroes, Shuna uh, sets off on a quest, but unlike most of them, or pretty much all of the others, um, he's not really forced to do so by circumstance. He's not, you know, many Miyazaki characters will set off to find a cure for a curse that they've been put under or to help someone they love who's in you know, dire straits or because a war is imminent and they need to try and stop that or whatever. They, they feel like they, they need to set out to, to, to solve something. Whereas he, uh, you know, he lives uh, in a community where the people of Portal, the first chapter makes that clear, but it also says that they are more or less happy with their lot. They're grateful for their crops. And in fact, when Shuna kind of floats this idea with his elders that he would like to find this golden grain and improve their lot, they say, um, you don't need to, we have what we need. They actually discourage him. And yet he still sets out. So he is uh, rebelling, basically. And I think that's really interesting because um, that I don't think the book judges Shuna or necessarily says that his decision is the wrong one, but by kind of setting up this um, opposition between him and the rest of his community who, who seem content, um, it is raising the question, uh, what is it that we need to be happy? What, what, you know, what do we need? in this world in order to be satisfied and at what point do desires become excessive at what point do they become greed um, as Shuno embarks on his journey and and discovers what others will do or have done in order to obtain this grain a kind of the story develops a second question which is um like what will what will we do what are we willing to sacrifice in order to to get what we want. Um, but in true Miyazaki fashion, these kind of deep philosophical questions are expressed, I think, primarily through how we relate to our environment. Um, people often talk about him as an environmentalist director. And I think this is basically the main reason why he's always asking us to consider what what we actually need from our environment in order to be happy and at what point do our demands of it become unsustainable. Um, there are things that, I think another one of the kind of like template Sparks Notes themes that Miyazaki likes to investigate in his films is the question of technology. And to come back to your original question, Jake, that's not explored so much here. You definitely don't have any kind of wild uh, sci-fi-esque space. There's no spacecraft or, you know, big kind of like steampunky machines or anything along those lines. Although, because the film is really concerned with agriculture, um, then it is talking about technology to the extent that agriculture is a kind of early technology of man. This is something that Helen McCarthy pointed out when I was talking to her about this book a couple of days ago. Um, agriculture is a technology and, and 
the extent to which we expand it and um, kind of harness nature through its tools is commentary on on technology. But well, yeah, the specific bits about agriculture in an area of the story in the the land of the god folk is properly nightmarish stuff. Like it's it's like almost bordering on like Cronenbergian horror imagery there. It's quite like it's like yeah. I, I did feel like this is not like anything of his that I've read or watched before. Yeah, you're right. It, it, the, the that kind of climax of the story is completely wild. Uh, <laughs> that that's where it starts to kind of border into sci-fi. Um, and I come back to this book, uh, Nashka Watercolor Impressions, where you can see all these kind of ide- He's he's painting these this concept art in the early '80s at a time where he's just exploring like a billion different tracks for potential projects, and one of them. Um, which you see in this book is a, a period uh, story set in the kind of warring states period of Japanese medieval history, which Mononoke is set in, where you have uh, a kind of yeah medieval. I don't know if he's a prince or a boy on horseback running around, but also with kind of alien <laughs> spacecraft coming in. So there's this kind of like marriage of period. Uh, drama you know military epic and sci-fi and um shuna's journey has it kind of borrows some of that um i said a minute ago that there's no wild spacecraft or anything like that but there are there is at least one wild flying thing in this story (laughs) and uh, another kind of big um yeah you're right jake we're 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 verging on body horror uh at points, um, there's a structure that kind of evokes the embryo of the big, uh, kind of artificial god warrior character in Naushka, for example. A structure that looks at once architectural and organic, which is really disturbing. Um, none of this, I should say, is in the original Tibetan folktale. This is all <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, Alex, this, this hammers home to me just how much at the time he must have been reading um, heavy metal, metal along. Um, he was, yeah. uh, and I think we've said before on this podcast how Nauschka feels like his um, tribute to Me- uh, Mobius Jean Garot, the mm. sort of very intricate line work style. Whereas I think actually in this book, this looks a lot. The landscapes at time look a lot more like Arzak, uh, his um, sort of wordless sort of fantasy sci-fi landscapes he'd have in that in that series. Because um, of course, at this time he was also toying with adapting. Uh, Richard Corbin's work. So it's yeah. very much reading the sort of alternative comics that were coming out of, um, I mean, admittedly, they'd be English as well as French language, but they were coming mm. out of French publishing at the time. I'd really love to do some deep dives into clearly he, you know, the influence and inspiration he was taking from these comics. And then I think in Schooner, it's expressed in much more of a way that is recognizable to to people who've seen his films, whereas Nauschka mm. is so intricate. Uh, certainly early on in terms of the line work mm. um it's it's a bit of a slog i suppose alex we, we our time you know, we could talk about miyazaki with you for for a lo- forever really but you have an intimate relationship with miyazaki now you've translated his words from japanese into english so what's his writing style in this book what's his voice is it stately is it stripped back minimalist flowery uh, I think I think minimalist is good. I mean, what, what 
it was daunting to translate a Miyazaki um, book and, and it definitely wasn't easy. Uh, but I think one of the things that simplify the job, and I, I mentioned this earlier, is the fact that it is essentially in, in one voice. And one of the hardest things for a translator um, is to try and capture and, and sustain the voices of multiple characters, which is something I didn't have to deal with here. Um, it's, yeah, in voiceover narration. And I think the best way I could describe it is fairy tale. Like, it really is like the narration of a fairy tale. There is no uh, floweriness. It's, it's very stripped back, very kind of clear and direct. Um, and there he basically describes the essentials for the plot and doesn't really go further, which again, this, this is how fairy tales are told, or good fairy tales are told. Um, there were some difficult bits that I said, there were some, well, firstly, I had to do a lot of research into um, the process of, um, <laughs> of seeding and cultivating barley, because as a born and bred Londoner, I was out of my depth when it came to discussions of the difference between seed and grain, hull and husk, you know, seedling and whatever. And so I had to do, that wasn't a matter of translation so much as basic knowledge that I had to kind of brush up on so that I could try and convey that vocab accurately. Um, what else? There was a tricky question posed around the name of these fantastical creatures that, um, uh, Miyazaki, sorry, sorry, that Shuna encounters towards the end, uh, these kind of spirit-like figures, which in Japanese are, are described with two characters, one meaning uh, god or spirit, one meaning person. And uh, it's a very unusual word in Japanese, and Miyazaki is using it here basically as a proper noun, a name for these kind of fictional beings. And um, I had to find a way to kind of translate that nicely. And the initial literal thought that came to my mind is God person, but that sounds a little bit kind of lumpy and, and prosaic. <laughs> um, I saw when I was reading around, like, you know, forum discussions of Shuna's journey in English, um, some people were describing them as God men, which was a little bit punchier, but... Um, the problem presented there is that there is nothing in the text saying that they're men, that they're male, you know. Um, so I, I didn't think that was appropriate. Um, and then I thought about maybe snapping out the compound noun format and saying the divine ones or something like that. Um, but then you're slightly losing that, that kind of punchiness and also the sense that this is really effectively a name for, for these people, a, a proper noun. And so I settled on God folk, um, which I like because folk is gender neutral. Um, it's one syllable, so you've got that nice little kind of scansion. And it also uh, chimes with the sort of lifestyle that we see these beings practice in the story, which is, you know, folk has kind of nuances of traditional lifestyles, traditional practices. And that's exactly what we see these, well, in a way, well, what we see these figures do. It fits the, the fairy tale tone of voice as well that you've been talking about as well. Just that word folk yeah. feels at home amongst it. it yeah, it, it felt right. And it's also, you've got the god warrior in Naushka. So mm -hmm. I felt like that mm -hmm. format of compound noun with god at the beginning was Miyazaki-esque. Um, 
but that was probably the biggest creative challenge and there were a few others like it you know japanese has ambiguity sometimes there are problems like subjects of sentences aren't necessarily expressed and you have to try and work out from context what is doing the thing <laughs> what is doing the verb um luckily when you've got images that that's already a lot of context right there um so yeah hope that answers your question oh, absolutely but you you resisted the uh <laughs> the temptation to throw in any slang or <laughs> 2022 pop culture references yeah 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 <laughs> the text would not have supported that um <laughs> no i think that's one of the things that, that there's very little slang there are no colloquialisms because mm -hmm. there's something timeless about the narration and so those words are not in there in the japanese that the japanese uses uh yeah it avoids all slang I, I always go back to Nabokov and his uh, towering skyscrapers of footnotes when it comes to translations, which is what he wrote about when he did a translation of Eugene on Onyegin. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, I'm sure there's a version of this which would have had pages and pages about barley. <laughs> Everything yeah, yeah. you learned in your research. <laughs> well, Nabokov told a whole story through footnotes in Pale Fire, and uh, mm -hmm. there's maybe a version of Shuna's Journey where some... Uh, over-enthused or slightly unhinged commentator develops a kind of meta-story around Sheena's journey in yeah, hundreds of pages of footnotes at the end. Uh, I restrained myself to a six-page uh, kind of translator's note <laughs> where I tried not to over-interpret the story because one of the beautiful things about it is how ambiguous it is, how much mystery mm -hmm. it leaves. Um, and so that's one of the wonders of, of this 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 story it doesn't spell things out for you um and that's yeah. what podcast conversations are for that's for yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but alex now that you've translated shuna's journey what's the next great white whale for you any, any other untranslated books that you want to push for next yeah i want to just keep um digging into the Miyazaki back catalogue, to be honest. There's still quite a lot of stuff he drew and wrote that have that has not been translated. Um, the most obvious white whale is his first um, published manga, uh, Sabaku no Tani, which uh, means people of the desert, basically. Um, and this is something he drew back in his Toei animation days when he was kind of starting out in the 60s, early 70s. Um, he drew this... Manga is it's, it's kind of more manga-like than Shuna's Journey, although it still a lot of the time uses the caption format rather than dialogue. Uh, and it is also set in Asia, uh, Central Asia on the Silk Road. It's the story of kind of warring tribes um, along the Silk Road. And it is... Uh, an early work, so you know, in many respects, cruder than Shuna's Journey and Nashka, um, both visually and also narratively, it's like a quite kind of um, Marxist didactic um, in its tone, um, which you know Miyazaki um, held a lot of these Marxist values has held them throughout his career, but they have become more attenuated or maybe like more, more subtly expressed in his films. Uh, so yeah, I'm really not doing up my chances of translating this by, by pointing out all the things that are not great about it. The things that are great about it um, is, uh, well, it's, a, it's like a nice, good, kind of like really kind of riveting action-packed uh, story. And it, again, 
is you, you just have the seeds of so many later Miyazaki concerns and obsessions and motifs right here in this in this early manga. It is quite rare. I mean, I think even in Japan, the status of uh, people of the desert is quite low in that it was initially published. I think it was serialized in a magazine in the late 69, 1970, something like that. And then maybe republished at some point in a magazine, but it hasn't been properly re-edited and presented in a proper kind of standalone edition at any point, as far as I know. Which makes me think that if it's not um, really marketed like that in Japan, it's unlikely to be translated anytime soon into mm -hmm. English. Um, I would love to do it. I'm sure many, you know, that many other translators would do a really good job with it as well. Um, we were discussing just before this call, Michael and Jay, that I'm kind of veering off into animation production a little bit. So I don't know how much I'll be translating in the near future, but um, that is one. But that actual translation, like live translation, I assume will be part of the job that you're doing with the work that you're going to be doing in production. So it's a Japanese, yeah, co-production. So that, that there will be an element of communicating with um, Japanese team. Yeah. Well, Alex, um, we're so excited for you having that new job. And it's such a shame to hope, but I'm not going to say lose you, but it's a shame <laughs> to, to lose out on your insight as a critic and journalist and translator. Um, and that does sound like a book that is worth tr translating because we don't have in the English language world, many texts of a juvenile Miyazaki, I suppose. We do have Little Norse Prince has always been available. Future Boy Conan has just finally come out. But mostly yeah. what we have is him as a fully formed filmmaker from Castle Cagliostro onwards. Uh, something from that earlier mm. period would be fascinating to see and maybe will shake that myth of him being the fully formed genius that we have him, we know him as today. Um, mm. Jake, you said you had a million questions, but should we ask? I'd like to ask the big question. Go on. To wrap up with Alex, of course you've been on before, so we can't ask you the question we ask everybody, which is what filmmakers should we look to next on the podcast? But then you provided the topic uh, that I'd like to bring up with a Twitter thread um, a few days before we recorded this about the Beatles and Studio Ghibli. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and mapping the uh, the axis of the Beatles between John, Paul, George and Ringo onto the personalities of Studio Ghibli. And um, please talk us through your thinking there. <laughs> oh God, what did I say? Um, <laughs> yeah, I think basically um, I was mapping Miyazaki and Takahata onto McCartney and Lennon. <laughs> But then at the same time, like trying to ask myself and others who is who, which is which. Um, and I remembered you guys saying either on a podcast or maybe it was in your book, making an analogy here um, between Miyazaki and McCartney on the one hand and Lennon and uh, Takahata on the other. Is that right? Am yeah, I, I think in the well? in the book it, it it was more to it's hard, isn't it? Because you because you go more into the texts that they create and what those texts mean, and yeah. I was maybe looking at it more from their personalities within the studio. Miyazaki being the the populist dream weaver who would make blockbuster content, um, you know, reliable blockbuster material. 
Takahata, I think I said, was Lennon with a little bit of Harrison in terms of somebody who was more iconoclastic and inconsistent in terms of the product, in terms of the popular product, Uh, but also in the way that Harrison and Lennon were more reliant as he goes on on collaboration and making connections with other filmmakers, whereas McCartney and Miyazaki were much more are much more about themselves as the figurehead. Yeah, I think. I, I, someone else on on my Twitter thread made linked Takata to George Harrison, and I think they they've got a real point there. They're also like two people with deep convictions who really put their um, convictions at the absolute front and center of their film, and can even be a little bit dogged about it sometimes. But um, in that sense, are kind of more consistent. I think maybe Takahata is clearer and more consistent politically in his films than, than Miyazaki is. Uh, but then, yeah, I started to kind of like toy with this idea in my mind. And obviously, it's like a game. Like, obviously, they don't. <laughs> there's no direct equivalent here. It's all fun. Like, it's all a way to just like talk about their personalities and, and their work. But um, with Miyazaki, what, what struck me about McCartney is I was watching Get Back and then starting to rewatch all of their films and documentaries and, and and interviews with him is that he's actually like he's actually very um guarded McCartney and and he 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 there's something even though he's a massive pop star who loves the limelight there's something almost self-effacing about him when you sit him next to Lennon who would freely acclaim himself a genius in interviews and just basically just just kind of like lay out his personal demons on the table and put those in front and center of his songs. With McCartney, I was always quite moved by the song Let It Be and I wasn't sure why, but it took me a while to realize that it's a rare song in which he really gets quite personal. And then that in turn made me realize how how rarely he does that. And there I started drawing a slightly different links between Lennon and Miyazaki as being more kind of willing to draw on their personal contradictions and so on and 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 present those in interviews and almost revel in those contradictions and in whereas Takahata and McCartney maybe a bit more guarded definitely in their public profiles um I don't know. There's no direct answer, is there, to this? And I'm still trying to work well, out who's Ringo. I, was the, I think Toshio Suzuki's Ringo because he's literally keeping the rhythm of the whole thing going. Yeah. Um, but also he has his occasional flourishes that might appear, like whether that's a song or the, the drum solo in the end. But that's him doing the calligraphy. That's him doing the title cards. So he will get his moments where he does get to shine in front of everyone. Yeah. But then disappear into the background. And no one really appreciating how much work he's actually doing to keep the whole thing going. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But then I, I see Suzuki as there's, there's something of the kind of master of the dark arts about him as well. Mm. He's got a kind of like he's like kind of Peter Mandelson of Ghibli, you know. And R- Ringo, I don't think um, can be said to be a bit dark. But th- this is this is I think but they do have similar is... glasses. <laughs> yeah, that is a very good point. This what's um, so compelling about using the archetypes of the Beatles and their associated other characters uh, in these settings is that they are so, on the face of it, quite you know, have obvious qualities, but then more complicated the deeper you look. 
Um, and also it's a, it's such a well-known story and everyone has their own take on all those characters that um, it's almost a shared cultural language to understand complex characters and complex um, casts of characters like we have behind yeah. Studio Ghibli. As you say, then, who who would be the George Martin? Who would be the Brian Epstein? I mean, I'd say they're both Suzuki. Well, I was, I was going to ask if we're proposing that these characters make, of Ghibli make up the Beatles. What is Studio Ponoc? Uh, so, the rotters, because because in some in some ways, uh, what is George Harrison? You know, again, there are so many layers to this. So George Harrison would talk about being the young guy that they'd all that they'd never fully um, respect. He'd always be the younger member, um, and that makes me think of in some ways Yonabayashi in the way that Miyazaki mm. would 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 do down would do him down and say we should ne- we shouldn't have let him out of the cupboard to talk to people and all this stuff. Um, so that's almost he he then breaks away and then makes work, but then that doesn't really work because all mm-hmm. things must pass. There's a <laughs> ma- massive hit, and George Harrison, yeah. uh, the first Beatle to have massive success out the gates in, in his solo career, um, and I suppose didn't really last though. Yeah, sadly, with you. I mean, that, and that's the thing, isn't it? Um, but then one, one thing I love about George Harrison is that he is in many ways the most complicated Beatle because he's the guy who has deep spiritual conviction, as you say, Alex, but he also loved Formula One and hated paying taxes. <laughs> 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 and um, didn't didn't really... Did, you know, didn't really couldn't be really consistent in terms of his creativity as a musician as well just uh, seemed to almost lose interest in it in the later 70s yeah. and have only brief flashes of inspiration whereas McCartney is just the one I think the McCartney Miyazaki connection is that the they both can be um, you know they can be argued to be once in a lifetime geniuses within their industries um, whether you want to pick pick apart the myth behind everything you can. <laughs> but I think the reason this whole Beatles Ghibli game works in the first place is that um, the Beatles are obviously about their music, but it's also about the personalities and the Beatles myth, uh, you know, almost became detached from the music. And we talk about them as a kind of a soap opera, a set of characters who interacted over 10 years before their story ended. And um, the filmmakers at Ghibli, Miyazaki Takata, and Suzuki, their producer, um, now in their own way, in their own world, have become, they're all personalities in, in their own right. And that's actually very mm. rare for an animation studio. <laughs> I mean, who talks about the, you know, the, the power plays behind the scenes at Pixar, unless you're really, you know, in the industry following the kind of trick. People don't really know the the director's names, or if they do, they don't really know their personalities and so on in the way that, fans of Miyazaki Takata and Suzuki pour over the kind of various feuds and kind of catty interviews and also kind of loving moments between those people. So I think Suzuki has, is a brilliant storyteller in the sense that he, especially in recent years, has basically narrated Ghibli's backstory. And so he's got a kind of, um, I think a lot of the behind the scenes uh, story of Ghibli it comes from him and it's kind of refracted through his way of seeing things maybe but um he has helped elevate the brand of ghibli and that includes the personalities of ghibli um mm. he's, he's basically helped to tell this kind of story um of the studio so, itself so what you're saying there is actually mccartney has an element of suzuki to him because he yeah. and he in he very much carried the flame of the beatles through 
the late 70s into the 80s and the 90s where he was almost the biggest fan of the Beatles and would trot mm. out these stories time and again, mythologizing the Beatles. He still does it today whenever you say, how did you write yesterday? And he'll, there you go, he, he's got that story. That's their yeah, own yeah. equivalent of the samurai sword for Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> yeah, he's become I, I their archivist-in-chief in a way, Miyazaki, yeah. I mean, um, McCartney. I think we should... Have, we- we should open it up to the listeners on this yeah. as well. Like, if you've got your own theories, like maybe, maybe we're wrong. Maybe Ghibli is actually the Rolling Stones. Um, and, well, I, yeah, we need to stretch witches. this out. Yeah. Who, the, who are the Rolling right. Stones? Because like <laughs> no, because I think so. The Beatles wrote wrote some stuff that for the Rolling Stones early in their career. So that could almost be like the other animators who are big personalities that maybe worked with Miyazaki, etc. in their early careers. Because we need to figure out who's Hideaki Anno in mm. this. <laughs> who's Mamoru Oshii in this. Mamoru Oshii. I was going to say Mamoru Oshii has a bit of a Rolling Stones uh, relationship to the to the Beatles slash Ghibli. Um, he, he kind of it's, it's partly playful, but he he's one of the few directors, really high profile directors in Japanese animation who's willing to just like openly insult Ghibli and and like chat chat shit about them basically uh, and you know he, he's written a whole book Mamoru Oshii um, called what's it called I've got it on my shelf somewhere uh, is, it, is that the, the, oh, the yeah. Ghibli no one talks about the, so is that the Ghibli no one talks called? about that's it exactly where he dishes dirt and just like calls them out for like all kinds of bad things and um, and so he kind of you know there's that opposition there between them. And well, so e- email listeners, please, if you've made it this far into this chat, email ghibliotech at gmail.com with your theories on which Ghibli member is which member of the Beatles, whether they are the Beatles, who Mamoroshi is, uh, if you and anything else. I mean, right, who's Yosh- Yoshifumi Kondo? Right. Yeah. These are, these are big questions that we need your help in answering. <laughs> <laughs> and Mami Sanada, uh, who directs the documentaries about them, I guess is Pete. Is she Jackson. Michael Lindsay Hogg? <laughs> yeah, or, or Lindsay Hogg, yeah, exactly. Or Michael, or, Michael yeah. Lindsay Hogg, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this needs to be a whole podcast mini series in its own right. We're going to have to have flip charts and everything. Yeah. We'll go full Oliver Stone, JFK on this. <laughs> I want to know what Miyazaki uh, uh, no, th- thinks about the Beatles. And I want to know what whether Paul McCartney, who you know produces exact produces animation, thinks about Studio Ghibli. That is, you know, that's the holy grail. Let's find that out. Well, the the one connective tissue I've said this before is there's a profile of Nintendo's uh, chief designer Shigeru Miyamoto uh, yeah. from the mid '90s, which says that his personal friends are Hayao Miyazaki and Paul McCartney. Oh so I wonder if they ever had a dinner party. I've said that before. And what did they talk about? <laughs> so that is the next question, Alex. That's something yeah. for the next time. You have to translate or write another book and we'll get you back on the show. Or maybe it'll be talking about the film, the, the, the projects you're working on uh, in animation. We'll have you on again and we can continue this conversation. Uh, but in the meantime, congratulations on Shuna's journey. Uh, and thank you for talking with us today. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Alex. Thanks so much, mate. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, as always. Thank you to Alex for joining us today and a huge thanks for his sterling work expanding the English language access to Ghibli in print. 
and consider this a big recommendation for Shuna's journey from me and Jake as well. It's a beautiful book, a beautiful object, and it deserves a space on your Ghibli bookshelf. That's it for today. We're going to be back very soon, next week in fact, with another interview special. I spoke with Cartoon Saloon's Nora Toomey at the London Film Festival back in October about her new film, My Father's Dragon, which is soon premiering on Netflix, so keep an eye out for that. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at GhibliAttack or on Instagram at GhibliAttack.pod. You can find out all about our book tour around the release of the anime movie guide, which is out now, of course. Um, If you've had a chance to pick it up already, uh, we'd love to hear what you make of it. You can send us an email at GhibliAttack at gmail.com. And you can find us individually too on Twitter. Jake is Jake H. Cunningham. Steph is underscore Steph Watts. And I am Michael J. Leader. Produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill, and Steph Watts. Our music is by Anthony Ying. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.